what you have to do as a business is make sense of all of this great information out there for the buyer. And there's really two ways of doing that. First of all, you've got to understand your market and all the great information that's out there. But the second thing, you've got to listen to your prospects. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. And today, my guest is Barnaby Winters. How are you doing, Barnaby? I'm really good. I'm really good, Matt. Great to be here. You know what? And I was talking before the show about screwing up people's names. And your name's Barnaby Winter, not Barnaby Winters. I still screwed it up. Yeah. <laughs> even I, though I, it was super easy. <laughs> you're not the first. You won't be the last. And I'm not related to either of the, either the Bernie Winters. Is how That's why people normally model it up. So... You're a brand creation expert, and you have a catalog of over 557 online and offline brands. You're the youngest MD of the UK Top 200 Integrated Advertising Agency in London, where you spent seven years undertaking a rank-and-file analysis of how to make your marketing really work in the digital knowledge economy. And today, we're going to find out more about what people should be doing now. So let me ask you before we get too deep into that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do? So right now, I run an organization called the Brand Bucket Company. And actually, it's really an outcome of a 10-year project when, as you said, I became the youngest MD of a, a top 200 advertising agency in London. I ran that for 10 years, swimming against the tide, used it as a, a really a bed to, to work out what really works in marketing, what doesn't, pushed out on my own. And I now run effectively a, a huge uh, collective for, of collaborations of agencies and different sorts of people. And what I, I'm able to deliver then through that is a, a portfolio career. I work with five to seven corporates a year where I embed the marketing thinking in every part of their business. I'm a professional speaker, so I do speak all over the world in places like Iran and Switzerland, but predominantly in the UK, although not at all right now. Um, and I speak about 35 times a year. And I do a lot of mentoring, so I mentor business leaders all over the world, again, all through Zoom, just to help drive them in the right direction as far as building their brand is concerned. And I write books and blogs and just keep myself busy. So I'm, I'm at a great stage in my career where I know enough to be smart and I don't know quite enough to not be stupid. So and that can be important when developing a brand. That's the important stage to be at. Yes. Whether that's, I think that's the level after... It kind of goes like you don't know anything and then like amateur and then like enough to be dangerous. And then now you're at the yeah, that higher right. level. Yeah, you get to choose when to be dangerous now, whereas before you just did it without knowing. <laughs> That's right. You know, somebody actually introduced me to someone by email the other day as a professional podcaster. And I was like, no one's ever said that to me in my life. And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, I've done 130 episodes <laughs> and... Maybe I am a professional podcaster now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether I, I'm not entirely sure whether the 10,000 hour rule still applies because of the, the knowledge economy we live in. And for me, a professional was always someone who has to have a piece of paper to do what they do. So if, if you've got a certificate for all those podcasts, then I'll turn you into a professional. If not, I'll just think that you're a damn good one. I'll, do, I'll, I'll make a certification program. <laughs> That's pretty much what flies for in, in the United States at this point. Oh, did somebody print out something that says you could do that? You're in. You're in, correct. 
<laughs> yeah, there's crazy stuff going on here. I don't want to get too into it. You know, this is going to air in 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 mid November, but we're recording it before the U.S. election. So there's all kinds of craziness happening right now. But either way, I'm sorry, Matt. Whatever, whatever the <laughs> I'm sorry I'm too. Sorry. <laughs> anybody who listens to the show a lot will know that I'm actually originally from Canada. So you know, I'm I'm as much of, of the process being a bit of a mystery to me as, as is to everyone else in the world. So. Let me ask you this. Obviously, the world has changed. Not is it just the digital knowledge economy, right, with the buyers being in sometimes more knowledgeable than the salespeople in some cases, right? But now you've also got this thing where almost every brand has been forced to go online or people work from home and that kind of stuff. What changes do you think people need to make in their marketing and their sales to keep up with kind of the new economy? Well, I think uh, the first thing that I think, Matt, that people really got to get their heads around is they've got to change the whole way they think about the use and the role of marketing. Some, some interesting facts have come out. Over 88% of all buying decisions start online. And when you think about that, think, hold on, wait a minute, that kind of means then if you're – I started my career when we were relying on television and press and cinema advertising – if actually what's happening, people are starting their buying decisions online, the majority of people, and it may indeed have gone up now, we've all been locked in our homes and stuck behind our screens. 88% of all buying decisions start online. Well, what, the, what does that mean? It means that actually people are waking up in the morning with, with some kind of issue, challenge, problem, something they want to improve the quality of their lives, and they're going online and starting to search and that search has really two key roles. The first role is it, it uh, qualifies their problem because, to be honest, Matt, if you type in a problem into Google and it, there are no results, what you need to do is go and see a doctor because you're the only person in the world that's got that problem. But actually that never happens. What happens is the page fills up with lots of options. There's the ads at the top and then there's the organic listings and there's some ads at the bottom and however Google choose to present the, the, the information. And then what you do is you search around a bit and you find interesting articles, you qualify your problem. You go, yeah, I've got a real problem, so does other people. But what you also start to find is you suddenly see there are solutions to your problem, to your challenge. And before before you actually contact an organization, you've probably already made the decision to buy from that organization. Now, when you start to get your head around that, you think, hold on, wait a minute. I'm using my marketing to tell people I'm here, we exist, that we've got great features about our things. Actually, that's all absolutely no use at all anymore because the buyer already knows all that stuff. And I can't tell you how often I start working with a, with a business. The first thing I often do is go to their website. And their website just tells me stuff I already know and doesn't help me buy at all. So we've got to really fundamentally change our understanding of the way marketing impacts on your business development. Because what we've got to do is use marketing and your brand to guide people towards you and ensure and help them to buy from you. That's a completely different role to what I was taught when I first came into the industry 30 years ago. Yeah, marketing sure has shifted. And you know, it's funny because when you look at how people kind of purchase now compared to how companies think people purchase, even though they have this data, they've had it for years. For some reason, the shift hasn't really happened in a lot of businesses, especially large businesses seem slow to adapt. I know I was speaking with 
somebody kind of high up in the automobile sales industry locally here. And man, what a shift that industry has gone through since the pandemic started. And it's kind of like thrust them into like 2020. They were still going by this old where they're, you know, they're putting out ads about feature and benefit and all this stuff. The people walking in the door to the sales floor or on the lot know more about the cars than the salespeople. Right. You know, they had all these kind of problems. And now what they've done is they've said, well, you have to make an appointment to come see the vehicle and you have to know so you can tell us which vehicle you want to test drive because we can't go in it with you and all this kind of information. Suddenly they're selling cars twice as fast as they were before because the people already know what they want. And they're committed and all they're doing is signing up to go buy it. Correct. Right. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's just been an absolute shift in their business. And they most of them did it accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Whereas actually, I've been taking businesses through that for the last decade, that principle. And actually, if you if you think about all the brands that have literally come from nowhere over the last 10 years, I mean, you, you've got the likes of Deliveroo and Uber and Just Eat and Alibaba and Zappos in the, in the US. I know they've been bought now, but you've got the Amazons, you've got the Googles, you've got, and they've all got one single thing in common. And it's not that they're online which is they do all have in common. What they have in common is they do not make the product or the service. They sell other people's products or service. And actually the brands that are beginning to dominate our stock exchanges now are the ones that are a way of buying things. Airbnb, you know, all of these things, they're ways of buying other people's real estate. And I think one of the big challenges for people who actually do do the production of the, either the products or the services, they're getting left well behind and they're going to get snaffled up by all the consolidators and, and, and all these, these intermediary brand experiences. And I, I think you've really got to nail and change your thinking entirely to say, actually, we're going to use the, the, the discipline of marketing to make the experience of buying from us truly amazing. That customer experience, once they actually have already decided to start going through the process, is super important. But also, it seems like a lot of companies are kind of almost, I don't know how you would say it. They're like avoiding the first step of the customer needs to take. And that first step should be immediate rather than they're, you know, trying to like front load them with all this additional information and crap that they don't need. And, you know, the the episode that came out just before this one, actually, sorry, I would have been just not important an earlier episode it was with your green pal and they are a service to find people to mow your lawn and you go to their website it just says type in your zip code and you type it in and they tell here's a list of people who will mow your lawn yeah right yeah you're already in the process correct as soon as you go to their webs they don't go there and go well the benefits of mowing your lawn are da, 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 making your house you know no or actually should i even get a lawn in the first place so i could get them to mow it right you don't need all the extra steps right just get get, to get started I, i'm a big uh, fan of gartner I, i'm a big fan of well, i'm hugely a big supporter of cb and the challenger sale and the challenger customer i don't know if you've, you've talked about that on your podcast at some stage seminal books from 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 my point of view but and effectively the challenge the challenge of customers sort of 11 years a uh, challenge of sale 11 years ago was was saying you know you, you've got to dominate the initial part of the relationship with insight and that was that was true so and we we all saw the the 500 word blog appear and all that sort of thing and uh, they then followed that up with the challenge of customer there was a real insight in that book which was 
at the point people contact you for the very first time, they've made 57% of the decision to buy from you. They're more likely to buy from you than not buy from you. And, and then most brands mess it up by doing flooding them with all their features and benefits and how long they've been going and et cetera, et cetera, and all that stuff. And people say, like, I don't need any of that. I'm, I'm, I'm in a state ready to buy. Gartner bought CB some 18 months ago. And at the beginning of this year, uh, we're in the process prior to uh, the pandemic of really teaching us how that's changed yet again. And, and I think this is really important and is definitely what I'm seeing is now there is so much good information out there online that you wake up in the morning with a problem, you go online and you're suddenly bombarded with stuff that actually all of it looks good and from different sources and to a point where you're now confused by good stuff. Forget the, the pain gain nonsense that was that characterizes selling 15 years ago. That's long gone. Nobody's interested in that anymore. Nobody wants to be told they're in pain. We're past all that now. But what people do want to know is they want to see how the quality of their life can be improved. And now there's so many ways to do that. And what Gardner is saying, and this is absolutely at the core of some of the work that I'm doing with my, my clients right now, is they say what you have to do as a business is make sense of all of this great information out there for the buyer. And there's really two ways of doing that. First of all, you've got to understand your market and all the great information that's out there. But the second thing, you've got to listen to your prospects. And you've got to, you've got to find a way of really engaging and talking to them and saying, why do you think you want to buy from us? And they're going to go, well, actually, I, I've got this problem. I see you're a solution and you come in blue and I really like blue. And you go, okay, why would blue be such a good color for you? Well, and what you can do is then make sense to say, well, the thing about you wanting blue is you might be better off with green because of where you're at at the moment. I definitely wouldn't go to the red because, you know, red's not good because you come from blue. But you might want to look at green. That's going to have a longer longer lifespan for you and people go okay that, that makes a lot of sense and when you can make sense for people they really want to work with you they want to spend their money with you they want to take your product they want to use your services and that is very different now if you're sitting at the top of a business thinking how do i create sense around the value that I provide in the market so that people who are looking for me right now online, when they find me, they go, God, these guys really do make sense. And I'm, I'm going to spend my money with them. Right. That idea of helping them make a more informed decision and a better decision based on what you offer rather than trying to just sell them whatever you can sell them. <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And it's exactly that. And, uh, and that we are finding has a real traction in the marketplace now. And the, the, the great thing from a brand point of view is you can create a brand that actually puts most people off so that the only people that, that actually fight through and start engaging with you and you're helping them make sense, they, they really know your, you as a, as, a, as a relationship they want to buy into, which is, is, is exactly what the car guys are doing. The moment people walk in and have already decided they want to buy a BMW or a Chrysler or a whatever, you're mad if you lose that as a sale because they've done so much work to get to your, your showroom. You should be absolutely throwing everything in the, in the kitchen sink at, at helping them buy the product they want. The sales process, I mean, it's sure changed a lot 
you know, over the years now. And I like what you were saying before about that kind of poke the pain mentality, right? That was something that we used to do in commission sales years ago when I was at commission sales in like the 90s, right? They would be like, oh, to find out whatever their problem is and then keep describing all the bad things that are going to happen if they don't finish, you know, clear up that problem and then bring them the solution with a halo on top, right? Absolutely. And, you know, and then it was pressure and, 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 you know, pushing for the sale and all that kind of stuff. And now you can be like the trusted advisor of your prospect, walking them down the road to victory, right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's so much better of a way to do business too. It feels better too, you know? Yeah. And actually it's, it's harder work because it's much easier to find the pain uh, and, and tell people they're, they're having a miserable life and they'll be as happy as anything if they buy from you. That's, that's easy. But I think there's a shift away from traditional hard doorstep selling, which is the kind of thing you're talking about, to to much more relationship building, much more understanding. And that's what the new knowledge economy has given us all. It's it's given us the data. It's given us access to people are willingly uh, sharing what they're looking for because actually they want a good outcome as well notwithstanding it's damn hard to get the money in the first place. So if they're going to part with it, they really want to feel like they've made the best decision that they possibly can. And we as brand owners can help them make that great decision. And actually that decision may be not to buy from us. It might be to buy from someone else. But I tell you what, the day you do that, you'll get five other prospects from somewhere you didn't even know what it is because people say, I went to them, I thought I was going to buy from them, they made me buy from them, which is better. But that is exactly where you should go next. Right, if you've got trust. I saw this graph that somebody sketched out on LinkedIn yesterday. I wish I remember who it was, but I was just kind of scrolling through. And it was, on the one side, it was how long does it take a prospect to purchase from you or how long to decide to make a purchase. On the other side was trust. And the more that they trust you, the lower the amount of time for them to purchase from you. And then they had like a little kind of like a line drawn in saying if somebody was a referral, they've already skipped like the first quarter of the graph, right? Because they already trust you a little bit because they got referred by somebody who knows you. Yeah. So my my experience would be absolutely not that. (laughs) So I think there's a real, if, if somebody's a referral, you have to earn their trust in the same way as if they were a cold prospect because a conversation that you and I have, Matt, and I say, you should go and do this or watch this show. And we were talking about something in Canada that I should go and see. Okay, that I bought into your values and your expression of that, and not the organization itself. And the risk is if the organization assumes I'm there because of what you and I talked about, they might get it horribly wrong. What you have to do is put people back through, in my world, the bucket process. And you have to assume they come in at the top of the bucket. Do not assume they're a quarter of the way there. That is an absolute big, big mistake to make. So I don't agree with that. I think the other thing is trust is earned and trust comes from you testing a relationship and it being consistently the same each time. So I think in the in the selling process, earning trust and speeding up the earning of trust so you get a sale actually doesn't feel right for me at all. What you've got to do is you've got to enable people to buy. And once they bought, that's when the trust comes in because they parted with their hard-earned cash for what you're, for what you're doing. So they have a real true sense of the value of, of what you're giving them. Trust can only really start to work then because I've given you part of my lifetime's experience, i.e. I've earned the money 
doing something I'm good at. And I'm now giving that to you in exchange for something you're good at, hopefully as an investment, because I could never do what you do. And that's when the trust really begins to start to, to, to melt. Anything prior to that is guiding people to that point of trust. So I'm, I, I think I would, I would have a, a great stand-up discussion with the person that drew that graph and say, no, I'm not sure I agree with any of this <laughs> from experience. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I, I guess my thought is it depends how you're measuring what you would consider to be trust, right? Someone who's never heard of your brand or you at all, like a absolute cold prospect versus someone who gets referred to you, they know a little bit more <laughs> than, the, than the person who knows nothing, right? Yeah, but what they know might be the wrong thing. That's the thing. That's true, though. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think there's a big risk in that, big risk. So what you're saying is that if somebody comes in as a referral, you should be starting them at square one, just as if they had never heard of you, to kind of go back through the entire process. And, I, you know, I think that's pretty good advice. Every time. I, and I'll tell you for why. I, I'm sure you've come across, and I expect people listening will have come across this, how often have you referred someone to someone else? And then for whatever reason, that someone else hasn't responded correctly. And the person you, you refer rings you up and says, do you know what? You know, you referred me to so-and-so. I can't get hold of them, or I can't, or they, they haven't been very responsive, or they haven't really helped me in the way that I, you and I were talking about. And what that does is that has, has a double whammy effect. First of all, it's obviously put off the person that you referred in the first place, but it also starts to unsettle you as somebody who's saying, well, I, I've always had a good experience with these people, and now they're not so good. Maybe I should start to reconsider my relationship with those people. So that whole referral piece is very, very complicated, and I think it's often taken for granted that if you create advocates, unless you look after them actively and you guide them on how to advocate your business and do that in such a way so they feed them back in at the beginning of the journey, I think you're you're running a risk. You really are running a risk. Yeah, well, I think that's true, you know, and, you know, I try to pre-vet, you know, whoever I'm going to send people to, you know, to the amount that I can. And I, and I think most people do that also. But man, if somebody, if I send somebody, a client of mine or a friend of mine, and they don't treat them well, I'm like, that is the last well, exactly. person time that anyone's going to get sent to that person, right? I mean, I will never use that business again. Absolutely right. And you know what happens? Most of the time, they don't, they don't tell the business either, right? No, no. I wouldn't tell them, hey, you screwed up when I sent such and such over. I just wouldn't use them anymore. No, and that, and... And that's why I say double whammy. You lose the referee and you lose the referrer at the same time. It's scary stuff. On the reverse side, if I do get a referral from someone and, and I, I do my best to take care of them and make sure, I always try to make sure that I thank them and thank the person who referred them as well as having the person who was referred to us thank the person who referred them because then you get twice the benefit of the referral. Yeah, and I think thank you is really, really important. And again, you see a lot of promotions where you say, you know, recommend a friend and get, you know, a new TV. Yeah. And then you recommend a friend and the friend comes around to your house and says, hey, you've got a new TV. That's kind of cool. And I go, yeah, I got it because I recommended you. Yeah. <laughs> right. go, oh, right. I got 10% off my first month's subscription, you know, and you've got a TV. That, it really puts the relationship on the under stress. So one of the rules that we've always had for the last 25 years is when you're thanking people, each, both the referrer and the referee should get the same reward, identical. And in fact, when we when we launched E-Trade in, in, in both in the US and, in, and across Europe, which is a big online broker uh, out of uh, Palo Alto, one of the incentives was you got, if you recommended somebody, you got a case of wine and they got a case of wine. 
Yeah, I like the double-sided referral. You know, we did that pretty heavily here with, there's a place that delivers vegetables and stuff to your house called Imperfect Produce. Right, okay. Yeah, if you get somebody to, to, to refer, you both get 10 bucks off your next box of vegetables, right? It's like an even kind of thing. Man, they picked the right person with me too. I've done that. I've, I think I've referred like 20 <laughs> people. They're like 200 bucks worth of groceries out of it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Companies always pick the marketing agency guy. Absolutely. That's who you want on your referral program. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the handoff or maybe the the combining between marketing and sales nowadays. Because I know that there used to be this big divide yes. between marketing and sales a lot of times. And that divide seems to be disappearing now, or at least it should be in most companies, I think. But Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm biased, so, so apologies for that. But I think there is no role for sales anymore. I think it's a dead discipline. My experience has been the good salespeople were really marketing people. So they, they knew how to commence relationships, nurture them, bring them into to stronger and stronger relationships until eventually getting them to the purchase point, then helping them cross the line and ultimately look after them after they've after they bought. The methodology we use, the brand bucket, it absolutely maps that journey from beginning to end. And one of the one of the, the weirdest things that has always struck me throughout my career, but much more so, is there's this concept of after sales. So then neither the salespeople are involved or the marketing people. But there's this group called the salespeople, the customer service people. Uh, and you go, whoa, hold on. Hold on. Where are you from? You've got no relationship. You didn't help form it. You didn't help create it. You didn't design it. You didn't nurture it. You didn't do any of that. And suddenly you're now in, in the key custodian of this particular uh, buyer. Are you mad? And I think marketing is really the relationship building discipline where you take it from initial awareness all the way through to long-term loyalty. And to a certain extent, the only thing marketing people are really not very good at is asking for the money. And salespeople are brilliant at asking for the money and getting the deal done. And so I think there's a little bit of a role at the, at the purchase point for somebody to come in and say, okay, are we going to do a deal or not do a deal? Whereas the relationship guys are going, okay, well, don't push it too hard. You know, we've, we've kind of been promising stuff and we want to make sure we can deliver and all that sort of thing. And so there's still a role for, for that little bit of hard nosed thing. But, you know, the old, you know, blast people, shout at them, tell them they're in pain, solve the pain and, you know, take their money and then run for the hills and then leave it to somebody else to sort out. Dial one for this, dial two for that, dial three for the other, dial four to hear the options again. That's what's now classed as customer service. And actually, it's been made worse here in the UK. The, 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 the big corporates have really, really struggled with looking after people in, in, in the pandemic because they're essentially greedy and they know that every time they interact with somebody who buys, their profits go down. So what they do is they create systems to make sure you cannot interact with them. And that just makes people never buy from them again. Never buy from them again. The lifetime value of their clients goes in the toilet while their short term profit looks better. Scary, scary stuff. And of course, what you know, we, we, we've introduced a, a, a furlough scheme here in the UK where basically the government has paid for people to not work. And of course, these big organizations have just laid off everybody in customer service. So now you can't get it. Yeah, then they then they put a post up something that says because of coronavirus, it may take longer to get back to you. Then they just never get back to you or it takes weeks. They never get back to you because there's no one there. And you sit there and go, okay, so let's just be clear about this. 
the tax that I pay to the government is now being given to these organizations to pay for their customer service people to stay at home and not work so that I have a miserable life. Okay, how does that work? That's a virtuous circle I'm not sure I'm buying into. To be right. It's not just the UK. Looking at you, Google. <laughs> Damn, Google, man. I had problems. It took six weeks to fix problems that are a button click. Just driving me mad trying to get a hold of some of these companies that I need to help people for, you know? We have these businesses, these small businesses struggling where they're like, Every dollar counts because they're just on the hair of bankruptcy, right? Because of coronavirus. And I can't get somebody to fix something that's a button click because they laid off all their customer service staff. Like, man, if I had an option for some of those companies, like, I mean, in the digital marketing space, there's companies you got to deal with. I mean, you just have to. You can't not deal with Google, right? Or you can't be a digital marketing firm and not have ads on Facebook. Like, it's just... I mean, you you can't. It's just they're going to go hire somebody else to do Facebook ads, Correct. right? So I got to deal with these guys. But is it hard since the coronavirus to get a hold of anyone who can give you any kind of real assistance? Completely. I mean, Facebook hasn't been as bad, but Google's been terrible. They're still terrible. I find that deeply, deeply upsetting. I, I, my, my, my equivalent story is I, I have a little device, which I've had for 10 years, which I, I punch in the code, and I get a code to do my banking. Well, the battery went flat, and it has now been four weeks, and I have still not successfully been able to get a new device to access my my business account. So I've not done any activity in my business account for for the last four weeks because a battery went on my little device. Yeah. I know. You're going to have to, like, do surgery on it and get a battery off of, like, Alibaba or something and... No, no, it's far worse than that. I've been to the branch twice. I haven't been in a branch for eight years. Right? And they gave me a new one, which I then used, which then definitely locked me out of everything because it wasn't set up right. <laughs> so now I, went, I was back at the branch again today. They gave me another way of doing it because it's, I've got into a deeper security problem and they've sent me emails which don't make any sense and I still haven't been able to connect, so I'm going to have to go back tomorrow. It's, it's mind-boggling. And then the first thing you're going to do once it's all fixed is take all of your money out and go somewhere else. Correct. Because you don't want to deal with them anymore. And so many companies like that, I just don't want to deal with them. Actually, I put this on Twitter the other day, and it was a step-by-step on how to use a website that you have to use for something, right? And it was like, step one, you go to the website, and you're looking for the, oh, hang on, something popped up. You know, click the box to say, no, I don't want to allow you to message me. And then... Okay, now I'm looking for the boat. Hang on. I got to close the window to sign up for the mailing list that I don't want from like my electric company. Like who gives a shit, right? And now I'm going to go try and find the boat. Hang on. I got to accept cookies and GDPR compliance or whatever, even though I live in the United States. Close that. And then I got to go try and find, oh, hang on. They want a customer service survey. By then you just fucking close it and you're done. You're like, I'm done. I'm not even going to forget it. I'll just go somewhere else. Then you go to the other website and then the same thing happens again. It's crazy. It just drives you mad. Then you get a live chat on that one so you can actually abuse somebody. (laughs) All right. By then you hate them. (laughs) You know, and then the poor customer service person can't do anything because their support people have been laid off for coronavirus. Yeah. The whole thing is just a customer experience nightmare. I have now nine hours of the worst on hold music from HSBC on my mobile phone, trying to get through to their thing and managed to get to a live chat person. They said, go into your branch. I went into my branch and they made me sit in a room for an hour while they phone the same number that I had to phone and wait for the hour. Right. I just, you know, uh, 
Yeah, what an asinine system. All right. So if you're out there and you're building a customer experience, number one, get rid of the like press one for this, press two for that and go through phone tree and have your phone tree automatically determine how valuable you think the customer is and put them in order. And then, you know, all of this BS that happens and then have your your person doing six online chats and two phone calls at the same time. Just have one per day. The people cost you $3 an hour companies. There's no reason for you to be cramming them. <laughs> Listen, I don't, I don't have a problem with a really well-run system and process that speeds up my ability to get the answer I want, okay, which is the, the idea behind dial one for this and dial two for that. But put me a human interface there rather than an automated one and then make that human responsible for my experience. So if they say, look, okay, well, what's your problem? Right, okay, I need to put you through to this department. I can see they're busy at the moment, yeah? They've got, you know, some calls waiting. If I can take your number, I will put you in the queue. And when you come up, I'll ring you back. Is that okay? Would that That's likely to be in the next 45 minutes. Will you be where you're at, et cetera? If you just did simple things like that, people will absolutely love you because that is just so not people's experience right now or ever, actually. It's just it's very depressing. That's true. So let me tell you, here's the opposite side of your banking issue. There's a bank in Oregon, I think they're Craig Union, called Umpqua Bank. When you go on their mobile app, so you go on with your phone, right? And you log in like normal or you use your face, right? You open their app and then they have a button you can click and it takes you to a teller and they're live on video chat with you and you don't wait. It just tells you when they're available and you click on, you even get to pick the one you want and you can pick them. It'll have like what their specialties and stuff are. So if you're okay, I need a business banker and you hit business banker and a person is there on video chat helping you as if you were at the branch. There's no waiting on hold BS, clicking through, waiting on chat for two hours. And all, all, all we want to believe is somebody's working on our behalf. We don't expect them to solve every single problem in the world, but, but you know, and that, I mean, that sounds amazing. And I, I genuinely believe the cost of investment of putting that together will, will pay itself in dividends from, as you say, the constant need to, in, in my world, put people in the top of the bucket because they keep leaking out at the bottom. That it might stop that. Then maybe the amount of communication will drop down so we can start to cope with it because it won't be people desperately trying to fill the hopper all the time with people, new people, because they're losing so many people out the bottom. It's like the old bank story where the guy and his kid walk into the bank branch and there's a table and it's got like toasters and coffee makers and presents and stuff on it, right? And the kid goes, Dad, why don't we get one of those presents? And he says, no, those are for people to open new accounts. And he says, well, how long have you had an account? And he says, I don't know, like 10 years. And so his kid goes, well, what do you get? <laughs> and he says, nothing. Nothing. Exactly right. And that's the truth, right? Companies are front loading the process of prospecting and lead generation. And then they don't give a shit about you after you've had that initial purchase. When the follow up is where all the money is. Yeah, because got, you've gone into after sales, minimum intervention, maximum profit. That's where you've gone. And then they don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And imagine if they had good service after that and then they, they got your credit cards and your mortgage and your boat loan and your car loans and your insurance and maybe your business owner. Now they got your credit card processing and they got all these things, right? And they would make literally a lifetime value of hundreds of thousands of dollars, but instead they got your, your checking account. Correct. For that five, five dollar pounds a month that they can screw out of you for not using the bank machine enough times. 
I personally don't get it, but hey ho, you know they they all sit in their wealthy share options and and look at me and go, well, who are you to have a comment? Okay, fair enough. That's the way it goes. It's it's what's happened in the world with the one percent owning so much and uh, everybody else not owning so much. You know, so it's not so good. Well, you know what? They go, who are you to con- comment? And you're saying I'm going to be the person who's still creating value ten years from now when you've driven your company into the toilet for your short term gain. That's who you are, right? I, I think that's, that's right. And actually, I, I'm very much a subscriber to Enough is Enough. And, you know, I'm building a school in Africa at the moment and raising money for that. And I work with, with young entrepreneurs a lot through a, a role I have as in the Guild of Entrepreneurs in the City of London. And actually, I've got time for that. I've got effort for that because I am not spending my night awake, awake worrying about customer service, which is so badly set up. And I know that I'm hemorrhaging hundreds of thousands of buyers every day because i've got a rubbish system i'm not staying up as a result of that so good luck to the myself yeah the only thing that keeps me up at night is trying to figure out more ways to help my customers and their customers correct absolutely that's fun i don't stay up waiting because somebody's gonna have a problem so barnaby let me ask you this if there is kind of a first step that you think you know your average business or small business owner can take in you know, to kind of modernize their sales and marketing, what do you think that would be? My experience on this is that you must start with a value proposition. When I talk about a value proposition, I don't mean a set of fancy words that some smart marketing consultant has been able to construct and you frame it and put it on your office wall and go, yeah, that's what we stand for. I What I mean is, that you construct a framework that governs everything you do from a value point of view. And that, that will have essentially four sets of values in it. And they all, in, in our world, begins with B. The first set of values is what are your behavioral style values? So what's your behavioral style? Because we buy from people we like, but what we found from our research in 2005 is not only do we buy from people we like in a digital economy, we buy from people who are like us because there's so much choice. So actually what we're doing is we're matching to our own our own light. So you've got to define your style values, your behavioral style. Now that may, well, that immediately differentiates you from other people who are who are in the same marketplace because your style is going to be you and you know, your business or your team or whatever. The second set of values you must define are your benefits. Again, most businesses are more worried about their features and what how clever they are than their, their benefits. Actually, what are you going to give me as a result of, of me buying stuff from you? And the reason why you must define that is everything in your organization must communicate your benefits at all time. So your website, your brochures, your packaging, your user guides, your, your contracts, your service agreements, your SLAs, all of these things, they must continually convey why you are of benefit to the people. So they now they now they kind of heard of you, they like you, um, and they now know what you're going to give them. And then then the third set of values is, is what you want people to believe about you after they bought from you. And the, the whole beliefs thing. So that actually in in the spirit of Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, rule number two, you begin with the end in mind. So actually when you're developing your marketing, you can look at the things you're producing and say, will that really elicit the kind of beliefs that we want from the people who buy from us? And that's a great way of judging judging the thing. And then the final, the final one, which is probably the, the hardest one of all, is what do you want to be famous for? What's the one thing you want to be famous for? And you bring that into everything. 
So the four sets of values in your value proposition are what's your behavioral style, what's your benefit hierarchy, what do you want people to believe about you, and what do you want to be famous for? If you define those, you'll be astonished to find that you can show those values at every element of your business and say, does that really deliver against these values? No, we should improve it. Does that? Yes, that does, right? We should shout that a bit louder. We should do that. We should engage with people in that sort of thing. And that, for me, is the fundamental foundation stone for any business. And I'm sad to say that almost all the businesses I engage with, whether they know it or not, really lack a value proposition. And that, that has to be the key, the key element to, to any business. And then once you've got that, once you've got your benefit stories, you can, you can tell story after story after story that relates to those benefits and, and be insightful and make sense for people and just bring them into your, into your, your relationship. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's some great advice. So behavioral style, your benefit hierarchy, what are your beliefs or what does your company believe and what do you want to be famous for? Yeah, I think it's more what do you want people to believe about you? Yeah. So it's, it's, much, it's always about the, the buyer. It's never about you, really. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I noticed the and I, you can't see this on the podcast, obviously, but I noticed that I think it's a Seth Godin. This is marketing on the bookshelf behind you there. <laughs> Seth Godin's everywhere. One thing that Seth Godin is kind of famous for saying is that staying or being able to, I, I hate to like mess up how he said it, it's fitting in in a marketplace, in a modern marketplace, is the same idea as failure, right? It's that if you can't stand out, then, I mean, you're you're not going to go anywhere. And if you don't have a good value proposition, you're not going to be able to stand out because somebody's just going to Google whatever it is they're looking for, and they're going to go down the list one after the other, going to each website, closing 100 pop-ups. <laughs> <laughs> and until they find someone who either looks like the best fit or answers the phone, you know. And so if you have a way to stand out in the marketplace and be be the one who's famous for that thing that someone needs, then that's definitely yeah, a great way to stand out. I think that there's a couple of elements there, which is, which is, you know, you don't need everybody. Very few businesses need everybody. So you can be very, very specific about who you do want. So again, probably the other foundation stone is you really need to define your ideal prospect. So you, and the way to do that is not through demographics, which is a tool that was created by the broadcast industry to to befuddle people out of their marketing money, because they told you you were going to get this slice of pie and then didn't tell you you're going to waste eighty percent of your money on the rest of the pie that was never going to buy from you. What you have to do now, and what we've been using for the last 15 years is psychographics, where you create a profile of the way your ideal prospect thinks, how they feel, what their experience of your sector is, what they're looking for, what their challenge is. And you create one profile. So that actually when you're creating the stories that make your value proposition come alive in all of your marketing, you tell those stories to your psychographic profile. Now, the risk with that is that most people won't fit the psychographic profile. But do you know what? It's very unusual for me to sit in front of a business plan and go, mm, do you know what? You need, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's different in elections where they need half the population to get across the line. But that's one of the few occasions where you need a lot of people. Most businesses, even the big, big, big businesses, don't actually need that many people as a percentage of a population. And for most of us, we're happy boys with 50, 100, 1,000, you know, even 100,000 buyers on a, on a regular basis. 
And that's not a lot of people. So you can be quite specific. And actually, one of the things that I often talk about marketing is it's, it's a great way of putting people off. So you're, if you blend your style with your benefits, with a desire to create a belief in your business in a certain way and be famous for something, you will, by its very nature, have to be unique. You have to be unique because as human beings, we're all different from each other. So you will ultimately be unique and you will give some somebody enough to be able to differentiate you from everybody else, which is really what the, the critical thing is, is can you be differentiated from other people? So if you follow my, my value proposition value hierarchy, it is inevitable that you will come across as differentiated, if not unique. Absolutely. And uh, man, you know, talking about not needing that many customers, like our our agency, we bring on two, three a month, you know, in a good month. <laughs> I mean, most of the time, our current customers take up, you know, the majority of our time anyway. We we can only fit so many people into the, into the schedule. And, uh, you know, that's why we're not out mass marketing. I, I like that kind of idea. And this, again, I think originally came from Seth Godin, but I've also heard it from, you know, like Ryan Dice from Digital Marketer and some other people that, you know, you'd whisper to the people who need what you offer rather than yell at everyone, right? Rather than screaming at the masses. My philosophy is you can't come in, your name's not on the list. But blow me down if your name is on the list, you're in. That's right. So I'm, I'm much more overt about whispering than anything. I'm quite happy. But you, 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 you communicate powerfully to only a very few number of people. I like that word powerfully. You want to make sure that you have impact on the people that you need to have impact with. Correct. But only on people you want to work with. Don't, don't, not on everybody. And you mentioned psychographics. That's we, in our business, we, we have like a customer avatar worksheet, you know, that people fill out, except we added a bunch of extra stuff into it than kind of your normal one. It's, it's almost like, like a character sheet from like a Dungeons and Dragons game or something like that. Right. It's got stuff about like what books do they read and where do they go? And what do they do? And what are their kids hobbies and this kind of stuff, you know? Yes. Yeah, for me, I, 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 to, to be honest, I don't think that goes far enough. You, you're trying to engage with people at an emotional level. That's still a very rational narrative. I, I, it's great if you then use that to interpret and say, well, people who read those kinds of books think like this, behave like that. But I, often that doesn't happen. You just, you just end up with an avatar that says they like cartoons or they like scientific books or they like Harry Potter or, you know, they like going. I know we have beliefs on the list too. So we want to know what they believe. Yeah, what they believe, what they're experiencing, what, they, what are they feeling right now? You know, that needs to be in the profile. You know, if you if you know that these people are confused or they're excited or they're adventurous or they're, you know, these are the kinds of words that you can really direct your marketing at much more easily than they read, they read books or go to the cinema or, or, or drive a certain car or have a certain income or have got a certain, certain social strata whatever, or they're male or female, for goodness sake. Oh, my, my goodness, you know, demographics still has male and female on it. I mean, really? Really? Have we, can't we move yeah. on? I mean, unless you're selling something that is biologically specific, it's, it's pretty unnecessary, right? Right, but then, then if your biologically specific marketing is in, in a place where people who don't match that biology, you've got your marketing wrong. You shouldn't be in those places. I mean, that's just the great thing about the digital arena is you do not have to go anywhere where the people that you want are 
cluttered by other people. You just never have to do it. Well, as long as the data that is accurate that's being used, which isn't always the case. But I mean, there's there's you, you do what you can. But, you know, I can I can look at targeting and I can just immediately look at it. I can be like, there's, there's, this ad should not be shown to me. <laughs> like someone should have been able to weed me out of this this ad buy. You know, how many times do we get an email that, that, that you know, is clearly, you know, you've been invited to to the uh, Women in Business Awards ceremony. You know, you go, okay, well, why, why, why have I been, I'm, I'm on the wrong database. And then all, all you go, yeah, I'd love to come. And they say, well, you can't, you're a bloke. You know, you can't come to the Women in Business Awards. There's only women. I go, okay, <laughs> you know, your segmentation is wrong. So it can be very clumsy. In the main, if you're addressing their emotional position, it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, BAME, you know, really LGBT, all of that really doesn't matter at all from a marketing point of view. What you want is people go, yeah, I have identified, I have a need, I've qualified that online, you've popped up, I love the cut of your jib, can we have a conversation? That's really what you're about, you know, and that's, that's how marketing should be used today, I think, rather than shouting at people all the time. Right. Yeah. Especially in like service marketing and stuff, there's just no need for, I mean, drilling down through demographics. Oh, just, it, it drives me insane. I think, I think if I'm, if I'm writing a business plan, you're probably going to put a demographic profile in because you need to tell the investors that there's a market there. But beyond that, from a marketing point of view, I think you really need to be getting inside the heads of the people you want to, you want to create a relationship with. And, uh, and the way to do that we found is very successfully is, creating a psychographic profile uh, and, and ignoring demographics. All right. So Barnaby, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to get a hold of you? Well, listen, um, if you type in Barnaby Winter with a Y, W-Y-N-T-E-R into, into Google, normally I pop up. But if not, type that same name into LinkedIn and there I'll be. And also my website is, strangely enough, www.barnabywinter.com. So I was in the internet early enough to buy my own name as a domain. So so there you go. It's I know it's a rarity, but uh, I did it for my daughters as well when they were born. So they've had domains for 20 years. So it is possible, but uh, it, that tends to show how old I am. <laughs> We're registrar also, so I just bought mine when it came available again. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and paid a lot of money for it, no doubt. <laughs> no, $16. Oh, $16. <laughs> well, your name, that's a lot of money. Uh, the, uh... That's right. We'll have those in the show notes too. You can find the show notes at hookseo.com slash podcast. Barnaby, thank you so much for being on today and sharing your knowledge with everybody, man. It is definitely a, a different world and a different marketplace now. And the customer service landscape has changed so much. And, you know, it's just good to have you on the show and, and kind of bring some of these things to light a little bit. Listen, Matt, it's been a real honor. Thank you very much for, for guiding me through my brain. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.